0: Let's bow for prayer as we look to God's Word. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather around the text of Scripture to seek your face together as the people of God, and I pray that you would deepen us and grow us in the truth that we here find. Glorify yourself in us. We've prayed this. We ask that you would hear that cry and that prayer, that you would be magnified in the way that we attend to the Scriptures and the way that we grow as a church. We're thankful for your grace, which transforms. And I pray, Father, that in your mercies, that you would continue to draw us to the Savior. And for those who know not Christ as Savior, that you would draw them to that grace that alone can save. We thank you for who you are, and we dedicate this moment to you as we feed upon your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Legend has it that coffee was discovered in the 9th century by a goat herder named Kaldi. Tending his goats on the Ethiopian plateau, Kaldi noticed that when his goats ate the berries off a certain bush, they became very lively. Indeed, they would sometimes stay awake all night. He reported this observation to the abbot of a local monastery who said, well, let's give it a try, and he turned it into a drink, as the story goes, and he was very pleased to find out that it kept him awake during evening prayers. Word spread, and the drink has been keeping people up at night ever since, and waking them more happily, waking them up in the morning. Some years ago I discovered a man laying on a sidewalk late at night in downtown Minneapolis and it was below freezing, below zero actually that night. Uh, Had he been drinking coffee? Uh, Clearly he was under the influence of a different substance, a different kind of drink. He had had far too much alcohol that night and fearing for his life, I gave him a ride to a place of shelter from the bitter cold. You don't even need to drink coffee or drink alcohol to detect the influence these drinks can have upon someone who consumes them. The caffeine in coffee tends to make one alert, wide awake. Alcohol relaxes, then stupefies, and then renders one unconscious or laying out uh, close to death on the sidewalk. If we liken genuine Christianity to a drink... What influence would it have upon the believer? What would we expect to see in the life of that believer? Let me illustrate the answer from recent days. A mission report in 2014 a devout Egyptian Muslim by the name of John began to study the Bible. And his intention in studying the Bible was to learn more about it that he might convince his Christian friends to to embrace Islam. That was his agenda. God had a different plan. And in the studying of that Bible, John came to Christ as Savior. John's life, Malika, was skeptical. Converting from Islam to Christianity in Egypt is dangerous. And she really had no interest in following her husband's decision to follow christ and so he went on and continued to grow he had been washed by the regenerating power of the holy spirit and the fruits of the indwelling spirit became increasingly evident in his life after observing her husband for three years malika also trusted christ as savior in part simply by watching what the savior was doing to transform her husband that's grace. Genuine Christianity is a living relationship with Jesus Christ. It is rooted in the truth of God's revealed word, and that truth produces godly living. It shows itself in holiness. The influence of the Spirit upon the believer's life transforms. It leads us to think differently, to act differently, to treat other people differently, to relate to God very differently. This concept is repeatedly stressed in the book of Titus. It's a theme we come back to week after week as we work our way through this book. But remember again that very important phrase in verse 1 of chapter 1, that he speaks of the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The local church is then organized under the leadership of spiritual shepherds whose lives are to display that godly character. That's chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, as we see those qualifications. And then the call to teach sound doctrine in verse 9. He must—that That is, a shepherd of the church must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, as received from Christ and the apostles, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul then uh, contrasts this healthy teaching with false teachers who have a lot to say, but what is wrong with their teaching in part is that it's not connected to the truth, but what that means then is it does not produce holiness. It doesn't change the lives of those who heed that word. And so we see them introduced there in verse 10, those particularly of the circumcision party, that he identifies the group of false teachers, the primary um, adherence to that false teaching. But notice verse 16 then. they They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So the words are there but not the deeds, not the attitudes, not the actions, not the relationships. That's missing. They are, in fact, in the sight of God, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They're not being fitted by the sound doctrine of God's Word. And so they're not fit for any good work. But we notice now, as we move into chapter 2, The teaching that promotes godliness. First of all, the call to that here in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, remember again there the contrast with these false teachers. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what is in sync with it, what produces it, what encourages it. The sound doctrine. True doctrine, sound teaching, fits us for those good works that the false doctrines Fail to produce. Now, at that point, in verses 2 through 10, Paul is going to paint a picture of how believers are to live in response to the ministry of sound doctrine in the local church. So, in verses 2 through 10, he kind of crisscrosses across the assembly, narrowing in on the influence the new birth has on various social groupings of church members in, remember, a very decadent culture a wicked island where Titus is ministering. So he chooses out first, in verse 2, the older men. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So here's the sound doctrine which leads to godly living and now some practical application to the older men. By virtue of their maturity, masculinity, and influence, older men will often set the tone for the church, and so Paul fittingly starts with them. Under the influence of the flesh, older men can grow spiritually lazy, small-minded, grumpy. Paul argues that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, chapter 3, verse 5, they must be sober-minded. That is, clear thinking, not swayed by passions. Not given to rash or foolish notions. Not swayed by conspiratorial silliness on the internet. That type of idea. They are to be dignified. That is, possessing nobility of character that invites respect, not silly or petty. They are to be self-controlled. That's able to keep their thoughts pure. Their speech, gracious, to manage their time and their money and to resist ungodly cravings of body and spirit. They're to be sound in the faith. That is, they are to trust God at His Word as well as remaining faithful to that Word. They are to be sound in love. They are to be giving, sacrificing men who habitually put the highest interests of others ahead of their own. They don't live selfishly. They are to be sound in steadfastness. That means older men are called here by God not to be quitters, not whiners, not easily discouraged, but men who bravely and patiently endure trials with their sights set on eternity. In a word, they are men who maintain a steady stride in life. With eyes of faith focused on eternity, they do not fritter life away in their last days as they await death. This is the type of life, Paul says, that you want to exhort these churches to to um, approach to pursue older women are found here in verse 3 older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine they are to teach what is good and so to train the young women who are the older women have been asked that about the older men but uh, the older women it's a little easier to define culturally and that's just uh, generally it is those who are no longer raising children So the children are are into adulthood. And remember there in that day, marriage would have taken place a lot younger. Uh, So these are maybe in their 40 as a general uh, age for the older women as they move forward. It's not a hard and fast category, uh, certainly. But you notice there the word likewise, older women likewise. That is similarly to older men whose lives flourish under healthy teaching they are to be reverent in behavior that is a sense that God is here I walk about life in the presence of God is the idea of the word she was she has a holy devout bearing she's not silly or giddy or irreverent not slanderers that is not loose tongued or gossips who harm others with their speech not slaves to much wine. We don't know why that's thrown in there. In fact, I taught this uh, book in China sometime here, fairly recently, a couple of years ago, and that was one of the questions that really vexed the class, was why, why it's you should be saying that to men, they thought, in their culture. Uh, why this is put here, I don't know. And some have thought possibly be just because women typically worked at home and there would have been stores of unmonitored wine during the day. Perhaps in Cretan culture, women struggled with the temptation to abuse that opportunity. Whatever the reason, and what's more specific for us, is, is that the culture, whatever those cultural specifics, the soil of true doctrine does not produce chemically dependent people who seek solace outside the influence of the Holy Spirit. So they're not given to much wine. They, don't, they, they are to teach what is good. Next, she must not live an isolated life or insulate herself from younger women, but rather older women are to lovingly shepherd, especially the younger women in the church, in godly living, to encourage them that way. And we see that in verse 4. So they will train the younger women. So he's, he's talking to the older women about training and teaching and discipling But now looking at the younger women, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. They're to love their husbands and they are to love their children. That does not say that they are to worship their husbands and worship their children but to pour out their lives in the best interest of their families, to serve, to encourage, to comfort, to aid their husbands, to aid their children in everything that they do. True doctrine does not produce cold, distant, crabby, sullen, or self-centered wives who manage their homes grudgingly. It produces young women who joyfully build up the lives of their husbands. They build up the lives of their children. They throw themselves into that work in a loving way. Sound doctrine also encourages young women to be self-controlled. It is not given to wandering affections, to wild emotions, to excessive taste, to ungrounded opinions or embarrassing social media rants. That's not what the calling is for a young woman, but rather to be self-controlled, to work at home. This is not a command to never work anywhere else but the home, but it does indicate that her base of operation is home, and she is its chief manager. Older women in the church will counsel her to lovingly, diligently manage her home such that it becomes a haven of warmth, a place of comfort of nurture and even efficiency for the ultimate good of her family. She is to be, younger women is a calling here to be kind. She's not characteristically sarcastic or critical. She's not mean-spirited or harsh. The law of kindness adorns the speech of the virtuous woman. And she's there to be submissive to their own husbands, This means that a believing wife who responds to the indwelling spirit of God willingly chooses to honor the leadership of her husband, whom God designed to function as her head and as the head of the family. She recognizes the design of God. She recognizes the calling of her husband. And she willingly cooperates with that plan. Such an idea obviously finds little support in our day outside of Uh, faithful biblical churches we recognize this immediately but pressured in the opposite direction by the spirit of the age many argue that this phrase is Paul's concern not to offend Cretan people and so it's a concession to the society that's why he places this idea in there which of course alleviates the pressure in our day uh, of this this phrase To be submissive to their own husbands. And the support of that, from those who make this argument there in verse 5, is that the word of God may not be revealed. You see that there at the end of verse 5. That, or in order that, for this reason, that they would not be offensive to people in the culture. So if you're following this reasoning, it's like you don't really need to listen to that. Throw it aside, because it was just conditioned on that day's situation and life on Crete. Oh, a few responses to it. I don't think we should dismiss it that quickly. In fact, as we dismiss it, we really throw out God's grace to families and to wives in particular. But let's think about is that what is going on here? Is Paul just saying, just so that you don't offend others, wives submit to your husbands. Four reasons why I don't think that's the case. Consider them. First of all, no one sees any other virtue in this long list with all of these people. No one ever sees any of it as culturally conditioned. Every one of them are virtues which flow from the Spirit of God, except this one. Secondly, this entire list of qualities are in accord with sound doctrine. They are stated to be, in verse 1, in accord with sound doctrine. Thirdly, similarly, the older women are to teach what is good, verse 3. So on this, this thinking that this is just culturally conditioned, you have to pull out this requirement from sound doctrine, and you have to pull it out from women teaching what is good and say there's kind of an exception to this one. Really seems inconsistent. And then number four, where in all of God's word... Does he ever command us to accommodate our lives to the wrongs of our culture so that we don't offend the lost? I I cannot think of a single example of that. So those who want to take that route, this is just a cultural issue for the day, can be dismissed. Of course, have another agenda. And that agenda is really to, first of all, I think it starts on the wrong premise of misunderstanding what it means for a wife to submit to her husband. Those who object to the submission of wives to their husbands do so because they cannot imagine the good that God works through this means in homes that are Christ-centered and Spirit-filled. Obviously, men have caused so much damage to women And particularly husbands to wives in the history of sin. But in the history of redemption, this is a gift. It is a gift to our homes. It is a gift to our relationships to understand how husband and wife work together. How God intended it to be. And while none of us hits the absolute and the perfect relationship because of sin, this doesn't change how we should perceive The command of the Lord and the counsel of the Lord. He never accommodates to a godless culture. But he does say things that do not seem to make sense. This is one that's very tough in our day. But it is one that is a gift to Christian homes. Indeed, when such a relationship is lived out in the eyes of unbelievers, we take away a source of reviling criticism. That's the point of the end of verse 5. That the word of God may not be reviled. That the sinners about you, that the lost world about, would look at the relationship between a husband and a woman as Christians and say there's something beautiful about that. Why do they get along so well? And we know that's not really what it is, is it? It's not that we get along so well. But it's that God has a plan for how this is to work. And so older women are to teach this to younger women. Younger women are to willingly apply it in their lives for the witness of Christ and the joy of their homes. Younger men, verses 6 through 8 follow, likewise urge the younger men to be self controlled. Don't think, verse 6, that Paul just ran out of ideas for younger men. But I think he kind of loops it in now with his directions to Titus as a younger man who will, of course, be discipling the younger men in the church. And so there's, in a sense, a carry-through to verse 8 for the younger men that they'd be self-controlled. And Titus, show yourself as one of them in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. The self-control. This is the third use of this word in this text, in this passage. So it's clearly an important virtue in the Christian life. Young men are not to be rash. They're not to be impetuous, unrestrained, or driven by sensual appetites. They're to show the prudent self-restraint of men under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And young men are possessed of that thing we call testosterone. They they have it. And there's an energy there. And there is a drive that is there. But under the influence of the Holy Spirit, He helps young men control that drive and drive it into good places, accomplishing good things by His grace. So God intends for young men then to control their bodies, their ambitions, their speech, and anger. To battle for purity in their use of the internet. To be fighting with God for purity of thought and activity there and elsewhere. Although this, is the, although this is the only virtue mentioned in the list, again, young men are looped in, I think, in some sense with Titus here, verse 7, to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. The famous Ancient preacher Chrysostom said, let the luster of thy life be a common school of instruction, a pattern of virtue to all. How often does youth, young men, take advantage of that, to say, well, I'm just a young man, and to excuse sin. But Really, here the calling is rather, particularly for Titus, to be a model of good works as a young man, Christ intends the local church to serve, indeed, as a communal arena of godly living. Titus is not only to preach sound doctrine, but to obey that teaching in a manner that others may emulate it, and see how he lives his life and follow that life. What spiritual devastation is caused when leaders play the expert in telling others what to do while failing to honor God's Word in their own lives? And Eden Baptist Church, pray for your pastors. We're people with feet of clay. We're people that have a a sinful bent like every human being. But pray that the truth of God's word is rightly modeled in faithfulness of living. And that is the prayer we should have for one another, all of us. But Paul, narrowing in here on Titus, is saying, live your life as an example. You're you're on display to the church. Be faithful to God. In your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Integrity that is untainted sincerity and purity of motive as a preacher. It's so contrasted with verses 10 through 14 in the false teacher's. Dignity, a high moral tone and serious manner appropriate to the sacred task. In verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That is teaching that is healthy and accords with sound doctrine. It's kind of difficult through here to know if he's talking about the content of his preaching or the motivations that he has as a preacher, but why pick? Uh, It certainly applies to both. But since everything in the list centers on godly character, maybe that's where the emphasis particularly falls, is on him as a preacher. Speak with sincerity. Speak with dignity. Speak soundly. Don't be making things up as you're preaching the Word of God. And the reason? What is it there, verse 8? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's like verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. People watch the church. They do. They watch you as a Christian neighbor. They take notes. They want to see how you live. And when you don't live in accord with God's word, they seem to be pretty good at catching that. No, opponents should, should be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Now that does not mean that false teachers will remain quiet, necessarily. It doesn't mean that they won't push back or object to what godly teaching says, but they will have nothing legitimate to pin on Titus, nothing that is evil in God's eyes. And we note there at the end of verse 8, the us. Nothing evil to say about us. That is the reputation of the Christian community is at stake in the preaching of the gospel. So pastors particularly must be above reproach in what they teach and preach. Now, there is, at verse 9, a shift in emphasis away from age and sexual categories to a distinct societal category in the church. Those members are to share equally in the responsibility to adorn the doctrine of God, that they are the bondservants, verse 9. They are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you see the, the consistency of this? How people look at God, how they look at church, how they understand that you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is true as well of slaves. Now, a few comments on slavery. We have to always work on this because the critics of Scripture are going to always put us in a corner on this one. Just remember, slavery in the ancient day is not slavery in America. They're not the same thing. It's as we say, comparing an apple and an orange. They were very different institutions. Slavery was much broader as a concept in the ancient world, slavery was not ethnically based, nor was it typically dependent in any way, shape, or form upon kidnapping. So, you're walking down a Roman street in the time of the Apostle Paul, and you see an Italian man and an African woman of the same economic status. Now, if we say we're going back to a day of slavery, we would identify the African woman as the slave and the Italian man as the free man. Ancient people didn't walk down the street like that. There were other indicators, but it wasn't that. She might be just as free as him, or he may be the slave in that situation. It was not racially based, and it wasn't based on kidnapping people. Abuse at the hands of slave owners was rampant, as was abuse by of wives by husbands and children by fathers and a lot of other things but it was certainly rampant slavery has never been a good institution for kind treatment but slaves in that setting could be very important people with high responsibilities that we have evidences there is extant literature that speaks about slaves who were physicians who were schoolmasters who were Uh, property managers and many times would become heirs of great estates we even see that in the old testament text on a number of cases in a number of cases let me say so that's this kind of the context as we understand it and then secondly uh, let's also remember the bible never condones slavery and indeed it undermines its very foundations Simply addressing the responsibility along with everyone else makes the subtle point that they are heirs of life, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's their reputation that is vital to the reputation of Christ, end of verse 10, just like it is for every other member. So there's an undermining here of the whole idea of slavery as one who is inferior. But what Paul's dealing with here is reality. It's not his purpose to discuss the evils of slavery, he's simply looking at the day-to-day lives of Christian slaves, asking the question, what difference does the new birth have upon a slave? Imagine if you heard that I was working in council with a man whose wife had divorced him and I was helping him think how to treat her now that they were divorced. Would it be right for you to draw the conclusion that I agree with divorce and think it's a good thing? No, I'm just dealing with reality. This is where this, this couple is. Similarly here with Paul, is that because he talks about how to live in slavery doesn't mean he agrees with slavery. It means he's dealing with reality. So the key here is that slaves in the assembly sharing an equal responsibility with all free members are to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to adorn the beauty and the power of the gospel. Slaves are not to serve then with a sullen, resistant, lazy, argumentative, insubordinate, untrustworthy, or self-interested motives. Rather, they're to serve with dignity with submission and a spirit that is quick to please and again a reason at the end of verse 10 so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior slaves are in a place of temptation and Paul recognizes that first of all they could live every day in a fleshly manner excusing all sorts of sinful behavior and attitudes excusing their sin on the basis of their social status or They could choose to model the beauty of Christ's character and their freedom from the bondage of sin. And that's what he calls them to do within the situation they have. Now, second point, and our time is gone. But the grace that enables godly living, we will focus far more attention on this next week. In fact, we'll focus here in in verses 11 to 15, Lord willing. But I do want to make the connection here to kind of stitch it together as the text does. Notice the word for there in verse 11. 4 why all of this for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age I'll stop it there but it is the grace of god that has appeared So the exhortations to godliness and holy living in verses 2 through 10 are grounded in a specific reality the preceding instructions, they're not free-floating. They are not calling us to live as good boys and girls. This teaching is not self-help therapy. The soil in which these exhortations are rooted is the objective truth. The grace of God has appeared. It saves, and that grace transforms Grace is shorthand here for Christ's work to redeem his people from sin. Jesus personifies God's grace to sinners. This grace has appeared in Christ's incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection. And his grace is inherently transformational. So catch this point. Do not miss it as we bring it in, Lord willing, to next week. This grace transforms So it's not efforts of gratitude to God that make us godly people. It's not efforts to repay God because of his saving grace. But this grace of God is at work in his people to will and to do of God's good pleasure. Well, Some say, well, what are we simply robots? No, by his grace, God changes us. Such that wherever there is genuine saving grace, godly living follows. Holiness of life is no mere suggestion. It's an evidence of Christ's saving work in our lives. Notice verse 15 where he says, Declare these things. Declare these things. So in light of this text, and again our time is gone, but is it clear to a watching world, is it clear to your local church that you are a person under the evident influence of Jesus Christ? Is the fruit of the Spirit on display in your life? You may say, I'm, this is discouraging, honestly. It's, I'm just discouraged. I'm frustrated with sin and spiritual lethargy in my life. I just call you here to repentance, to start there, to go to God in prayer and to say, I'm failing. I'm falling short of the life I know you want me to live. And secondly, to pray for this growth. It is the grace of God that saves and sanctifies. Ask God to continue to change you and grow you and give you new affections. It's amazing how much we grump about our spiritual lethargy and don't pray about it. Ask Him. And then pursue life in the body of Christ. Do we not see that here as he talks about the different groupings of the church? And let me me call you then also to patience. Look long. You may be changing more than you know. It may be changing more than it feels like. But look long, patiently walk with Christ day by day. He's in the process of changing his people and he'll change you if you truly know Him as Savior. Let us again note that this sanctification project crosses every category of membership. It unites us together as a local church as participants in the Spirit Sanctification Project, young and old, male and female, different economic status. Let's pray for Christ's transforming work in our lives by his grace lord we plead for that grace now it's in our lives we see it where it's evident we pray that that grace would do its work and that the grace that saved us would be the very grace that sanctifies and changes and grows us we ask that you would work in this church and draw to christ those who do not yet have that grace who do not see it in jesus death and resurrection We will praise you for all that you're pleased to do as you influence us by your presence through the indwelling spirit in our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen.